0: Welcome to the Indigo Podcast, an exploration of human flourishing at work and beyond. I'm Ben Barron of Indigo Anchor and Cleveland State University. And I'm
1: Chris Everett of Indigo Anchor. For more information, please visit us at www.indigopodcast.com. Hey, everybody. Uh, just want to thank you again for listening and sharing the Indigo podcast. We continue to grow um, organically from our audience members, which is really humbling and awesome.
0: So awesome. Absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, just again, thank you for all of you, you know, who contact us. Uh, if you haven't contacted us and you have something you want to share with us, some ideas, some a comment, whatever, uh, just go to com slash contact, and you can easily send us a note right there. And as Chris mentioned, please share our content, you know, tell your friends about us. Um, that's how we grow and we're all in this together. So uh, that's how we approach things. And we really want to kind of make this um, something we do with you.
1: So Ben, today, what are we going to talk
0: about? So today's podcast is Us Versus Them, Healing the Management Employee Rift. And uh, yeah, and uh,
1: so what are some pieces that are going to fit underneath that big title? All right, so we're going to talk about the big rift that can emerge between management and employees. We just see this all the time, so we wanted to address it. And um, then we're going to talk about how to align those factions and, you know, heal that rift. And then we're going to talk about practical steps to head in the right direction. Great.
0: So why don't we just jump right in? with that first piece and unpack this idea of this big rift that really can emerge between management and employees in an organization. So maybe one way we could start is by sharing a little bit of the symptoms. You know, what, what does this look like when this, this, you know, fault line, so to speak, this rift can start to separate management from the rest of the organization.
1: Right. So one of the things that you see Straight out of the gates is this thing called wheel spin, uh, what we call wheel spin, which uh, organizations are just trying to complete projects or they're trying to transform or get something done. And they're just not getting anywhere. Yeah. So, so, you know,
0: management is kind of seen as having all these. Good ideas, you know, in the in the military, and the government, they call them the good idea fairies, you know, that come around and, and are trying to get things done, but nobody's getting on board. Nothing's happening. Uh, maybe there's a whole bunch of strategic initiatives, but no progress is happening on any of them. And things are just
1: feeling like they're, you know, you're treading water as an organization. Now, this is normally a uh, two-part diagnosis for wheel spin. One is, is your project management process garbage, right? right? But let's say you got all the wingdings, you got the agile coach, you got the PMPs, you got <laughs> everything. Yeah. McKinsey came out and gave you a PowerPoint and you actually did this stuff on it, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, it didn't just be like, man, this is like level 12 PowerPoint. Look at it. You know, and then you don't you it. put it in the drawer yeah so
0: (laughs) (laughs) would you look at that
1: (laughs) oh my gosh youtube anyway um we'll post a link link to the look at that youtube video (laughs) if you want to waste some time of your life right (laughs) but anyway the the wheel spin is yeah and and you'll see we get drawn into these meetings as consultants and people like well we just keep telling them and i you know these people and all that kind of stuff. And it's like, you know, what do you mean these people? Um, right. And sometimes managers will or, you know, and the executives will say,
0: oh, you know, it's all about accountability and we just need to, you know, we need to tighten the screws down harder and we need, you know, everybody needs to be on a time clock and we need to be, you know, holding people's feet to the fire. That, I mean, that's a natural reaction. But as we'll discuss today, it's, it's probably not the most productive reaction.
1: Yeah. So your your org has everything in place from all the hottest pop business books and top professionals. But you got wheel spin Mm -hmm. Um, generally means there's a rift. and, And I'm always surprised at the lack of awareness and that there's a rift between management and the employee. Right. And then this can lead to a whole bunch
0: of cynicism and mistrust. Uh, you know, employees are just not willing to try the things that managers suggest, no matter how potentially well intentioned they are. So, for example, you know, the, uh, the maybe the new boss has some new ideas about what they want to do with the organization or with the team, and people are just kind of like, "Well, that all sounds great, boss." And they and they they'll nod along in that meeting and they'll say, "Sounds good," and then they'll just kind of slow walk it, right? They'll just it will just kind of not really happen. Uh, and you know, in their minds, a lot of times they're just kind of waiting for the, they're just like, okay, this is just another flavor of the week type thing. And we'll just, you know, we've been through five different bosses in the past five years. Um, once this person burns out and leaves, we'll just, you know, we'll have another person with new ideas, right? They say meet the the
1: new boss, just like the old boss. (laughs) Right. (laughs) So it's a
0: cynicism that can really set in with regard to any kind of, um, change efforts, transformation. This is an indication of that rift that's occurring.
1: Yeah, and you'll often get stuff like managers, oh, we know more than the employees. And, mm. and you just might, actually. Sure. But that, that sentiment, you know, if I went in, gosh, imagine going into your significant other and being like, listen, babe, <laughs> <laughs> let me tell you, right? It automatically sets up that psyche- uh yeah. it's that us versus them, right? And that person's um lizard brain's gonna reject that kind of uh sentiment, right? Right, right. Yeah. Uh and there's also this
0: thing that you know you referred to as the, the behind the back handshake. And this is a really kind of interesting idea because I think it's a a metaphor that describes this this issue that happens in a lot of organizations. Why don't you share with our listeners what you mean by the behind the back handshake that happens?
1: Yeah, and if I remember right, I mean you read so many of these books. Listeners, if you're not reading, start reading. But read. um read. But um I think it's called Leadership and Self-Deception. And we'll mm. put a um article in the show notes um on that one. But um let me actually put that down. Article and show notes so we don't forget. But um this book, Leadership and Self-Deception, will talk about this thing where You know, in any organizational life, as you're doing work and stuff, somebody might drop the ball just a little bit. And it's probably not self-intentioned. It's probably just because they're not a robot. They're a real breathing human being. right? Right. And so when there's this rift and when there's this kind of behavior that goes on within organizations, like a lot of wheel spin and it's like, oh, well, now I'm not going to give 100% because that person's not giving 100%. Or mm. the assumption is that they're not, right? And then the other person sees that lower before performance returned, and then they use it to justify, oh, I'm really good, but these other yahoos. So, And really everybody knows what's going on, but it's this kind of behind-the-back handshake or drug deal or whatever you want to call it that justifies lower performance. And, you know, in the book, they don't talk about a rift, but really that is a rift because you're no longer have a collaborative alliance to get the critical tasks that need to be done. Right. You know, if you've got that cynicism and mistrust, mm-hmm. um, if you've got the attitude of managers no more than employees, people will start justifying as much suboptimum behavior as possible.
0: You know, a related idea is this idea that we call an organizational behavior of uh, satisficing, right? So this idea that uh, you know you you have some sort of task, some sort of project, some sort of requirement that you're trying to meet, and you get it done. You want to basically, uh, you know, get it done to the minimum level that you that you need to. Uh, yeah. So you, so you are sacrificing the the actual quality of your outcome, um, but you you are satisfying kind of the lowest bar, uh, so it's kind of you know this, this word satisfying kind of combining you know satisfying with uh, sacrificing right so you're sacrificing the optimal outcome, um, but you're just kind of getting it done you're just kind of you know this is where you got a team sitting together and they come up with some they're trying to solve some problem and just they can't just kind of latch onto the first plausible thing, not 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 really pushing towards the best solution. Um and so that this happens when you start to have if you have this rift that uh, you know, this can happen for many reasons, but if you have this rift between management and employees, um, you know, th- this starts to occur more and more.
1: Right. And there's no pride in your work. Um, mm-hmm. you know, where you turn in some and be like, Yeah, that was awesome, right? Mm-hmm. It, that that goes uh out the door. Um Another one of these things is status, that is the position in the organization begins to take on existential meaning versus positional, and and let me describe what that means. So, you know, the idea of like, hey, you know, I'm an expert in, yeah, I don't know, Cisco servers or something, and I love setting them up, configuring them, they're awesome, or I'm an expert on this piece of manufacturing equipment. I love maintaining it. I keep up with the latest software updates. I don't want to talk to management or do the scheduling or planning, right? That mm-hmm. That's where status has what I call a positional value. So it's like, you know, Jim likes doing paperwork. I like doing work, right? Um, Jim and I, kids go to the same baseball team type thing, right? but then there's this existential meeting as if somehow management or managers are more important than and you know I don't mean this in a derogatory way but line level employees. So if you're an individual contributor, my view is you just have a different role than management. But mm-hmm. in places where there's a rift, you can see that status begins to take on a Special meaning like a management is so special. So I call that the existential meeting versus positional meeting. So if you start to see some of that existential meeting, oh, the managers, the managers are meeting, you know, that kind of Mm, stuff that that displays some of that rift.
0: I mean, it's like if you walk into into an organization and you kind of just take a tour of the facilities and so forth and you go from the, the area where perhaps, you know, most people are working, maybe it's cubicles, maybe it's a plant floor, whatever, but then you go to where the, uh, you know, the, the more senior level managers and maybe some of the executives have their offices and, you know, the carpet changes quality in a very dramatic way. You know? <laughs> and <laughs> and it's not
1: just because people have muddy boots or something like <laughs> right, that, right? Right,
0: Yeah. It, and, and, you know, you, you can always expect that there's going to be perhaps a, a nicer office for the CEO versus, uh, you know, some manager somewhere, but... Uh, when it starts to become this cultural attribute, and this artifact that, that is signaling that, you know, kind of shoving it in people's noses that we are we know more. We are better than that kind of thing um, that can really contribute to and and also be a symptom of this rift. So, you know, the kind of the direction of causality here probably is bidirectional where, you know, this can create the rift and it's also a symptom of the rift.
1: Right. Right. And, then, and you don't have to have. You know, this is kind of like the DSM-5, right? That's that psych manual. Mm -hmm. You know, like if you look at their diagnosis, it's like, you must have five out of eight of these. So you get, you generally have more than one, but just because you're missing one, don't let yourself off the hook, right? Right, right. And, you know, another symptom of
0: this could be a pretty obvious one. You could have an actual kind of separation and breakdown between... Uh, labor and management. So I'm thinking in particular, you know, an actual labor dispute. If you are working in a, in a unionized environment, uh, if you have um, a bargaining unit in your organization, and I know that this is becoming uh, less common um, than it used to be, for example, in the 1950s, uh, but there, you know, still about one third of our public sector employees are unionized and uh, um, still are, it's still an important part of many organizations. Um, So, you know, this this could happen in terms of a labor dispute, um, some sort of failure to agree on a collective bargaining agreement, but it could also, you know, involve um, other ways that, for example, labor can... um, can, can really get back at management. So things like working to rule, right? So
1: Right. <laughs> I mean, that's an interesting concept. Now, describe that? that. Cause we're not yeah. actually talking about like King ruling, like I'm yeah. the ruler. So w- right. working to rule, working go ahead, to rule that. is, is this idea that,
0: you know, okay, we are only going to do exactly what is in our job description. And you can imagine, you know, just think about your job descriptions that you have at work Um, And if you're only doing exactly what you're supposed to be doing, you don't do anything that's kind of outside of that scope, and you're very narrowly interpreting your job, uh, that can very quickly grind an organization to a halt. And we're going to talk more about kind of why that is and and what, you know, how other ways to think about job performance here today in the episode. Um, But that that can be one way in which this rift can really become manifest. Uh, Of course, taking that to another level. Could also involve some sort of impasse between uh, labor and management in terms of their contract negotiations. Could involve things like striking, et cetera. Um, So in addition to all these other kind of, um, you know, symptomatic things that that tell you there's a rift between management and employees, um, there could actually be some sort of actual breakdown and separation if you're operating in a unionized environment.
1: Yeah, and for now, we're in a late business cycle. Another example is venture capitalists are snagging up companies and trying to smash them together and sell them as a bundle, right? Mm. And so, you know, senior management, even mid-management, be like, let's goose these returns. Let's get, and then we'll get out of here with the big exit. Well... (laughs) the the employees are like well what happens well, we just show up to work man you know mm-hmm. we don't have like a million dollars worth of stock options and stuff so there there can be that rift that emerges and that's that's really a whole other episode on managing that you know culturally if you, if you are in that type of situation however that can cause that management employee rift these structural things uh Uh, union versus the company, Um, line workers versus the exit strategists. You know, Mm -hmm. anytime you have these kind of groupings, they, if not managed correctly, it can cause a rift.
0: Right. So maybe now we can turn our attention to a a little bit more about uh, some ways in which this can emerge. Now, of course, this can emerge and this can happen. This rift between management and employees can happen in so many different ways. But uh, uh, there are a few different things that we thought about when we were preparing for this episode um, in terms of mindsets and approaches towards managing people that can lead to this rift between uh, management and employees.
1: Right. Uh, And one of the foundational uh, looks at this is from this guy named McGregor, who has a theory X uh, versus theory Y in managerial styles. Mm. And so just describing those real quick. So theory X people only will do what you make them do
0: yeah, so this the uh, yeah so this is the approach that managers have it's a belief, right so as right. a manager, if i'm a kind of a theory x manager i I believe that people are only going to do what i I make them do, uh, and that they're always looking to get away with um you know get you know still getting paid but pr- producing less effort.
1: Yeah, this is a command, classic command and control style. Mm-hmm. This is the parent waiting outside the kid's door, making sure they go to bed. You know that kind of thing. Might might help you at the house. Probably not the best approach at work. Mm-hmm. Um, theory: Why people would uh, they want their employees to thrive, and they view their ideas like we need to tend the soil, make the great uh, conditions for employees to thrive. And you'll see some of this in the agile community. A lot of people kind of pick up on theory why somewhat organically, but McGregor, I think is one of the main guys that came up with kind of how defin definitions and how to think about some of this stuff.
0: Right. And what's, what's interesting is that, you know, the way that you approach management, the way that you approach managing people in particular can become a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? And so, you know, if if you believe that people are always just trying to get away with stuff and that they are, you know, there to just get, you know, get as much for as little effort as possible every day, then you're going to start to notice that. And you're going to start to, um, you know, implement controls, for example, uh, and, you know, really try to tighten down the screws on accountability, for example. Uh, making them produce more reports, making them you know watching them more, uh, really having emphasis on compliance, uh, and you know as a result they will probably um, push back against that a little bit. People don't tend to like those types of things, and then they're you're then you're going to believe that oh well they are trying to get away with less, and maybe they are right. So it creates this self fulfilling prophecy, this unvirtuous cycle of uh, bad behavior between management and employees Um, versus if you truly come to work as a manager thinking you know what Um, people don't just show up to work in general trying to screw up people want to do things that they can be proud of and my job as the manager is to create the conditions in which they can do just that Um, well you're probably going to do things that are supportive in nature you're probably going to do things um, in in which you recognize and reward high performance, uh, and people are going to start to behave that way. They're going to realize, oh, you know, this manager is not just trying to, uh, you know, catch us doing things wrong or, uh, you know, make us comply with everything. They're actually trying to make us uh, or help us be all that we can be here. And you'll start to see more and more of that. So these, these mindsets and these approaches in very subtle ways can start to change people's behavior. And uh, that's a really important piece um, that managers need to remember.
1: Right. And an- another piece, because we're talking about how does this management employee rift emerge? And mm-hmm. you know we are taking more of a focus on management because guess what guys you know as i say in the south it's y'all's fault generally um <laughs> what one of the things that we should have put in the symptoms are uh employee focus what's wrong with our employees that this is going on you uh, know
0: i had i had a senior management team that i was doing some consulting work for uh a number of years ago and uh you know they were complaining about a lot of things that were going on in their organization and you know, what I really wanted to do was to show up to one of my sessions with them and with a little mirror and say, yeah. Hey, 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 everybody, I have the solution to all of your problems and, then, and really get their attention and then pull this little mirror out and just like hold it up in front of all their faces. I, I didn't do that, but, uh, um, <laughs> <laughs> it's so trite, but it, I know. God, you just
1: <laughs> fantasize about it sometimes
0: Yeah, because, you know, it really is about your own mindset. You know, it, you can't, so you can't directly change people, make people change their behavior. Um, but what you can do is you can change your approach towards communicating with them, towards how you treat them, how you th- even think about them, because that's going to manifest itself in your attitudes and behaviors, and uh, people will react differently to that. And when they start reacting differently, then they actually start changing. That's really cool.
1: So we'll add that to a symptom at the top. If you have, yeah. if you're not looking at yourself first, mm. you might have the manager-employee rift. You might have a rift, All right? Yeah. So. So going back on to one of the things on how this stuff emerges is um, there's a focus on tasks and team conflict alone when looking at employees rather than what, and we'll talk about this a little bit more, uh, broader organizational citizenship behavior. So mm-hmm. when you look at the employee review process, um, you know, how many widgets did you turn out? Okay, that's fine. It's fine to have task evaluations. Does... Bill know how to um, design software well. Does Susan um, create CAD drawings appropriately, right? So that that's task. If you're only focused on task and, oh, and Susan doesn't cause fights in the coffee room. So mm-hmm. she gets an A for her review. Um, well, if you're only focusing on that, there's just so much more in the broader context of employee work. Just like when... They, we talked about working to rule. It's impossible to define. So if you're like, nope, that wasn't in the job description. Not going to doing it. Hey, Larry, could you? Um, you're over by the uh, printer. Could you reload it with some paper? Nope, not in my job description. Right. <laughs> Things grind practically to a halt there. Right. right. Uh, but but even when we don't have, say, like a labor uh, issuers, you know, kind of setup. Right. We do that to ourselves almost, right? Mm-hmm. Because we're only focusing on this task and whether somebody's a jerk on the team or not, right? Yeah. There's so all way, well, these yeah. other things that you right. need to look at.
0: So one way to think about this is a lot of times, you know, if you're only focusing on the what people do um, versus the how they get things done, exactly. um, you know, that can really start to make this emerge because how we get things done is really important. Uh, you know, you can drive results within an organization while being a, just an interpersonal train wreck and Ugh. treating people like garbage and really, you know, deceiving others. And and, and you can get some results. Uh, you, you really can. Um, I would argue that those your longevity and your ability to continue driving results will probably diminish over time because people aren't going to want to work with you uh, and that it's not the best strategy for long-term success. Uh, But, you know, focusing on the how is very important here. So if you're only focusing on the what,
1: that can lead to this rift between management and employees. Right. So let's, you know, all these, it's a mindset thing, Mm -hmm. right? Where it's so much easier to focus on the tangible, right? It is. Um, But... these kind of mindsets and you know management approaches contribute to organizational culture and how people think about their work. What what are some of the ways that that happens?
0: Sure. So, I mean, I think obviously people come to work um, because there is some sort of economic exchange going on. I'm going to trade my effort and my time and my skills and knowledge for some sort of compensation, uh, you know, pay and fringe benefits. And that is important. Yeah, um, sorry a... founders.
1: Yeah. <laughs> as much <laughs> as I love your vision, I also like to eat, right? <laughs> right, right. Um,
0: and but there also is an element of social exchange. And this is a part that I think a lot of managers don't really realize because it's kind of under the hood and it's you know, behind the scenes, but it's so important because for example, you know, we don't just come to work just to get paid. I mean, that's as long as we're, if we are getting paid, that's great. But what's going to keep us there and what's going to help us actually flourish and what's going to make us want to, you know, go above and beyond, so to speak, as an employee are things related to what we call social exchange. So do I feel like the organization has my best interests in mind? Are people treating me in a way that recognizes my performance, that shows that they really value me as a person, that they uh, recognize my contributions to the overall overall uh, team or organization. Um, And when there is that, uh, when when there is that sentiment, um, then, you know, I'm going to, first of all, feel obligated to perform better and be more loyal to the company. Um, But I'm also going to, uh, it's going to meet some of my socio-emotional needs, right? So we we like to be around other people. We aren't, um, you know, most people aren't uh, suited well for the hermit life, <laughs> you know some people might be, um but in general, you know s- solitary confinement is still one of the worst things that you could do to somebody and um and the one reason for that is that we are social creatures, and so the workplace is one place where that happens, and so uh you know remembering that there is a social exchange that's going on that we need to have harmonious ways in which we interact with each other is very important um. Towards, you know, not
1: creating and perhaps healing some of these rifts that can occur. Right. And then there's this view of, like, only managers have a career, right? Yeah. Oh, and and then I went from manager to senior manager. Then I went to the little bit more senior manager. Mm -hmm. And junior director, you know, and it's so, like if you go to any bank, there's like a thousand, <laughs> uh,
0: you know, vice presidents of various types. Right.
1: All right. Yeah. Yeah. If you go to a bank, you start. It doesn't matter if you're 22 years old, you're starting as a VP because <laughs> people don't want to feel like they're talking to, you know, Joe yeah. Schmuck. Right? right. So anyway, but you know, that even if, so let's say somebody comes into your organization and he runs a piece of manufacturing machinery and, um, he runs it for forever. Is there any acknowledgement that he's the most elite user of that machine? Mm. Or, you know, one way it, that is pretty good is, Hey, you know, first year of service here, you know, annual service, he's got his five-year ribbon or something with a, a watch or something like that. So, you know, this this idea that there's, you know, management track has more meaning. That's kind of those existential type thing rather than a person. Or in the way that they design people's jobs or celebrate, you know, these are mindsets. You'll just see them that just indicate that this rift is here and not doing what you, you know, healthy things for your organization.
0: Right, right. So
1: we've talked about, you know, what this rift is and a little bit
0: about how it can emerge. Uh, Let's turn our attention now to aligning these factions. Um, You know, if there is this kind of separation uh, between management and employees, if there's some tension there, um, some ways in which
1: you can start to get things aligned. Right. So, um, so. The theory-wise stuff, we talk about tending the soil, right? So I kind mm-hmm. of view a lot of this through the plant-garden model, right? You know, just think about the soil and planting and all that stuff. If you have a black thumb, I I don't know. <laughs> Still think <laughs> about the plant-garden model, right? As right. if you didn't, right? There are things that can be... There are things that um, are programmed into the people DNA that you inherit in your organization. Everybody has their own backgrounds, thought, process, but there's certain things that transcend and are part of all of our humanities. And so when you have theory X and Y, you know the tendency is to say well Y is the best way and it's true, but you know sometimes theory X can be appropriate. If you've got a group of new recruits and you're like hitting the soil in Afghanistan and taking fire right and away, you don't have the time to say, well well Philson, how, how do you think about holding a support by fire position here? You know, <laughs> right, you know it's it command and control can be appropriate yeah. in certain or, times, yeah, yeah, or if you have somebody who is consistently not
0: performing well, like they need to be gone,
1: right, um, although <laughs> lots of times that's on the manager, right? You should be yeah. looking at yourself first, right, yep, so in the vein of theory, why, what if you worked on creating the fertile soil
0: mm-hmm. for
1: people to thrive in and and so Ben, what would some of those things of good soil in an organization look like? Sure. So a
0: lot of this comes back to an area of research, actually, that's been, um, you know, that's gone on for many years. And, you know, this whole idea of high performance work practices. And uh, these are things that are we we know just to be best practice in terms of how we manage people. So, for example, having good good incentive structures in place with regards to, uh, you know, our pay, our bonus systems. Um, not having it be some sort of black box in which people have no idea how things are determined., uh, having good performance management, both in terms of your formal performance reviews um, as well as your ongoing feedback that happens, kind of that feedback culture piece um, between supervisors, actually both ways, between you know among supervisors and peers and direct reports. Uh, a big piece of this is creating a a climate or c- creating the conditions in which fairness and what we call organizational justice are prevalent. Um, you know that people are treated with dignity and respect uh, that um, you know different resources are allocated in a way that's fair, and that you know when when we do allocate resources that we explain the you know the process that was used to make those decisions so that people can understand the why you know, with regard to our decisions. And then just having having great manager training and selection for, you know, to be a a leader and a manager, you've got to not just be, you know, good in your individual contributor job and have some technical competence, but you need to have um, the willingness and some training around things like, you know, how do you do this well? How do you really ensure that people know that they are being cared about as people and
1: that their contributions are being valued? Right. So... There's, there's two parts here I want to highlight is you got to have managers who actually care about people's well-being. That's huge. Right. And and we always say this. You can't fake that. Nope. Right. And so, a matter of fact, just having the right heart as a manager c- covers a multitude of these faux pas. Yeah. Right? And, and
0: really, I mean, the it really speaks like big issues of character, I think.
1: Right. Uh, you know, hiring a manager who's stone cold, um, man, it's just, there's all these. So we talk about these other behaviors that aren't just those task driven behaviors. These mm-hmm. are the soft pieces that go. So that, that's one. It's like, do you got the raw goods of a manager who gives a rip? Right. right. And then two, the organizations just, well, actually there's, I'm going to divide, you know, there's three things. So uh, given a rip, Having a manager that's equipped and trained about this stuff, this you're not just born with these kind of knowledge about theory X and theory Y yeah. leadership, right? That that just doesn't happen. And then the fo- final thing is having a way to evaluate your managers on stuff besides just their team output. Mm-hmm. And you know, I see that all the time. Well, Philson delivered all products on time within the quarter. But how about? Filson didn't have massive amounts of turnover because he was a giant jerk, Yeah, you know, you know, they and companies do this poorly. I mean, we have to go in and calibrate this all the time for organizations of, you know, how their managers uh, quarterly annually annual reviews and those kinds of things and training work because orgs just don't do it.
0: Right, right. And so what you can imagine here is imagine that, you know, as an organization, you are creating this special type of environment in which you're only tolerating behavior that's aligned with the culture that you want and need. Um, this would really go beyond, way beyond any kind of simple job description uh, or accomplishing basic tasks of any role because it's, it's not just about what you do, it's about how you get it done. Uh and this involves what we call in in the uh, scholarly literature, uh, <laughs> which, which must
1: be pronounced that way. Put, um, put on your cardigan when you say hmm, this word. Yeah, so I, must wear,
0: my, I must, <laughs> must wear my academic robes when I do this. Um, <laughs> here in the ivory tower. <laughs> uh, um, we call nice. these things organizational citizenship behaviors. Um, and a related idea is what we call contextual performance. And this is a really fascinating idea. And I can remember back when I was... Uh, when I was a young warthog, um, just studying or, in, industrial and organizational psychology for the first time, it, it was really like this kind of this light bulb moment that, hey, there's this whole other set of behavior that really matters at work. And so we're going to unpack a little bit of that because I think this really goes a long way to um, speaking to, you know, how you can encourage these behaviors. And then that, that can that can address this whole idea of this rift between management and employees. Um And so organizational citizenship behaviors, or OCBs, uh, refer to types of behavior that are not necessarily things that are in a job description, but they contribute to the social, the psychological climate and well-being of the organization, right? These are oftentimes those unspoken attributes of good performance. You know, this is the not being a jerk type stuff.
1: Right. Right. Uh, This is all the soft stuff, and this isn't stuff, you know, know, when somebody sells a company, they'll value the chairs and the buildings and the income, but then they also have this category in accounting called goodwill, right, Mm -hmm. which is really kind of your people, you know, it is, but it's not just your people, because you can always get more, but they have all this institutional knowledge and all that stuff. That's actually not what we're talking about, well, you know, Mary knows that we can fill out this form this way and get receiving to do this behavior you know that that's a different type of stuff. This is involving the kind of soft soft behaviors that um occur within organizations so um let's let's go through some of these uh, sure
0: yeah we'll go through a couple of these to give some good examples, and this comes from. Uh, this from from an article that's uh, fairly old now, but it's still really good that kind of reviews a lot of this. Um, this was written by Philip Podzikoff and uh, some of his colleagues and it was published in the Journal of Management. We'll put a link to to uh, or a citation of this in the, the show notes. And in this article, it's a review article, so they look at all the research on this topic of organizational citizenship behaviors, and they look at how people have defined this and some different examples of it. And so not going into too much crazy de- detail, but I want, we want to give our listeners a taste of what are we talking about when we talk about this.
1: Um, so let's talk through some of these different dimensions. Yeah, so one of the things is if you actually know this list of material, as a manager, you can say, am I seeing these kinds of behaviors? So I know mm-hmm. that we're going in a positive direction with organizational citizenship behaviors, or am i not seeing this behavior, which now we're more transaction and we're more in that rift zone. So altruism. Now, mm-hmm. you know, the philosophy majors are probably like, ah, it doesn't exist. It does exist. But, but using this as a label to define some of the behaviors you might see can be helpful. So, You know, they talk about it capturing behavior that's directionally and intentionally aimed at helping a specific person in face-to-face situations. That's right.
0: right? So the big big category here is helping behavior, right? Right. So helping behavior, helping each other, Uh, things like altruism, um, things like being polite, uh, you know, courtesy.
1: um, Let me get that door for you while you bring that heavy thing in.
0: Right. I mean, uh, making peace with each other. Um, you know, there's actually an interesting whole uh, literature, for example, on organizational forgiveness. You know, it's it's really interesting things, right? Um, You know, helping each other in terms of cheerleading each other. Um, You know, you're not required. It's in no no one's job description that you're required to, you know, provide some recognition necessarily to each other in in informal ways. But how great is it when one of your peers um, or, you know, someone around you says, hey, like, thank you for that. You're doing a great job. Keep it up. Like, And if that's not it, it, sometimes it's even more genuine if it's not coming from the boss. Um, So that's that's really a really great thing. And that's this idea of helping behavior. Um, Yeah, imagine
1: past you. I mean, you're assigned a work buddy to help onboard you by HR. But imagine if two or three other people were checking in on you and make sure do you need what you need. mm -hmm, mm
0: -hmm. I mean, that
1: communicates so much about what's going on in those uh, citizenship behaviors.
0: Right, right. You know, another category is what we call sportsmanship, right? So, you know, being a good sport um means, you know, putting up with some of those things that are tough at work um without without whining about it and creating a bunch of grievances about it, right? You know, not every part of organizational life is is puppies and rainbows. Um there are parts of every job that are hard and there are things that go wrong. And uh, you know, it's it's about um tolerating those things in a way that's that's saying, look, all right, things are maybe maybe we screwed that up, or maybe the manager screwed this up. Let's let's be positive and look towards the future in terms
1: of how we can continue to accomplish our mission. Right, and I see this all the time in managers so it's like, "Oh yeah, the, these are some great behaviors to have in an org. Guys, do these behaviors." <laughs> and and it, it doesn't work like that way. Just like you can't say to a watermelon plant, you know, be ready in one week, mm-hmm. right?
0: Right. Well, and oftentimes, uh, you know, sometimes managers will say we want people to do these things without
1: realizing that they need to do them, too.
0: (laughs) Not not only
1: do them, but and, and we'll talk in the final segment of this episode about like what you need to do to start heading that way. But there's concrete things that orgs can do to help curate this. And it'll come it'll come about slowly. It won't come about by command or fiat, but you can't start getting there if you don't even know what there looks like.
0: Right. You know, so another way that we can think about these organizational citizenship behaviors is the the distinction between those that are directed towards individuals and those that are directed towards the organization. So things like helping each other, that would be uh, what we call an organizational citizenship behavior that's directed towards individuals, you know, helping people, cooperating with people, um, facilitating interpersonal interactions. Now, organizational citizenship behaviors that are directed towards the organization could be things like being loyal to the organization. Right. Um, and, and one thing that we call boosterism, it's just a right. fun, fun idea. You know, this, this is, this idea like, Hey, when you're talking to your neighbors, how do you talk about your organization?
1: Right. And, and, you know, cause you'll see videos on company's website. I love working at company X. It's so awesome look at the kumbaya we're singing in the background here you mm-hmm. know and it's all curated but i see this so much in the software development community cuz you'll go to these say like a dot net meet or meeting or meetup or mm-hmm. group or something and people are like hey it's it's kind of lame where i'm at i'm looking i you know there's this job <laughs> opening at at company y and and everybody be like, don't go there. These are the, if you do, these are the three managers to avoid, you know, because people, especially in networked communities like software and, you know, IT, they talk about that kind of stuff. So if you're not curating this, people are going to be like, yeah, I mean, they all stink, but these ones stink worse than those. Right? Right. Right. And just to go back to, you know, what we already talked about with
0: like theory X and theory Y and so forth, like, you are not going to increase someone's tendency to uh, be a a booster of your organization, to engage in that kind of, you know, talking well about your organization through compliance, right? Because you can't watch people
1: when they're not at work, at least uh, not yet, right? So, um, Or uh, this is something I've seen. I actually seen this like five or six times. So I I know it's not a one-off on the best companies to work for thing that cities will do. Yeah, to yeah. give awards out. And they'll everybody make sure to go in and put a good vote for us, you know, oh then fall and tell their employees to do that. <laughs> and it, if you're doing that, you know, you're not having, uh, uh you're not in a good place where healthy organizational citizenship behaviors are right. going down. Everybody will log in. Hey, Bill, have you filled that thing out? Oh, look, we won best place to work. And yet, Everybody knows it's not true. Um, yeah,
0: I, I mean, and one thing we're trying to do with this podcast and just our approach in general is to pull back this veil of, of ridiculous lies that we tell ourselves about our organizations that we try to, you know, create this facade of what's really going on. Like that, that is, that is a disingenuous way to approach leadership management, um, running a, an organization where people can thrive and flourish. Right. So um, get off my soapbox there. But anyway, um, <laughs> so some other dimensions of organizational citizenship behavior. Uh, one, you know, we call compliance, which is, you know, doing just doing the things that you need to get done. Um, and uh, but another kind of piece of that would be um, what we call spreading goodwill uh, and endorsing kind of things that need to get done in the organization. So for example, let's say you have a bunch of safety rules and regulations and, you know, some people are like, Hey, like, you know, we don't really have to wear our hard hats over that area. It's, it's really actually kind of safe. And, and, you know, or the, this piece of organizational citizenship behavior would be like, no, I think we actually do. Cause this rule is here for a reason. If it's not there for a reason, then we need to work to get the rule changed. Um, so let's, let's go ahead and do this to make sure that we're being safe. Um, that's just an example,
1: right? And I mean, think about a romantic relationship or a marriage where you have kids, right? Mm-hmm. Um, things are going great, everything's wonderful, but through uh, being really busy, not tending to each other, slowly your you know marriage citizenship behaviors decline, mm-hmm. right? And then it may actually not be toxic to where you're like screaming at each other, you know, all that kind of stuff. But you settle in to this kind of pessimistic malaise, right? Mm -hmm. And heck, your relationship may last all the way until you pass away, you know, decades later. Um, But let's say you realize that and and say, you know, I really want to put a bid to making my relationship change right? These bids and change of behaviors are going to take time. Mm -hmm. You can't just tell your significant other or spouse, Hey, let's just start doing better. How long does it take when there hasn't been goodwill? Oh yeah. Right. You say you'll always be home or you say you'll always be at Billy's games and you're never there. You know that you have to start, turning it around and show it up. And it's just gonna take time So for those managers that are very Theory X uh, oriented, you can't command these things by fiat, right? So that kind of goodwill, building goodwill within your organization takes a lot of time.
0: Yeah, right. That's well said. Uh, So another piece of this organizational citizenship behavior equation is something we call civic virtue. Uh, This is, you know, uh, that you're speaking up. When you when when things when you have opinions, it's about uh you know actually you know paying attention to what's going on in terms of hey reading your email, staying abreast of what's going on, participating right. in things. Um, that's all all part of this as well. Um, and you know I think another piece that, that sometimes is is included here is what we call self development. So you know people who get involved with their own uh development, trying to continually make themselves better. So you know, I hope that this has provided for our listeners a, a more uh nuanced and and more complete description with some examples of these these what we're talking about when we talk about organizational citizenship behavior. It's such and if you think about it, it's such an insen- essential part of an organization running well.
1: Right. And so when you talk about, well, what do employees get out of it? Well, a place that's worth working for with managers that are worth working for. But when you get it wrong, we get these things called counterproductive work behaviors, mm-hmm. right? And th- these are the negative things that you do want. You know, Filson takes, you know, 15-minute smoke breaks every five minutes. <laughs> right. Right? Um, oh, Filson's Filson. on Facebook, you know, 45 minutes out of every hour and not just, like, keeping it open on, on his you know, desktop, but like actively engaged in political diatribes or whatever, right? Goodness.
0: Yeah. So what, you know, what this is kind of pointing to is a more, a broader definition of what good performance looks like at work. It's not just if there's task performance, which is, you know, getting those things done that are part of your job description, those things that transform, uh, you know, raw materials into things that the organization Produces right, all of those types of things are important, but it also involves these organizational citizenship behaviors and avoiding uh, these counterproductive work behaviors. You know things like gossiping and stealing and maybe even sabotage. You know one one related idea to organizational citizenship behaviors this idea of contextual performance. Uh, and there's a great definition of this actually in a in a classic article um, by two very well-known industrial organizational psychologists, uh, Wally Borman and Stephen Modowidlow. And, you know, they describe it. I'm just going to read this quote because I, I think it's so good. It, it talks about this idea of contextual performance. It says, contextual performance does not contribute through the organization's core technical processes, but it does maintain the broader organizational, social, and psychological environment in which the technical core must function. It includes activities that promote the viability of the social and organizational network and enhance the psychological climate in which the technical core is embedded, activities such as helping and cooperating with others, following organizational rules and procedures even when personally inconvenient, endorsing, supporting, and defending organizational objectives, persisting with extra enthusiasm when necessary to complete own tasks successfully, and volunteering to carry out task activities that are not formally part of the job end quote, and I think that that's just you know a, a really great way to be thinking about the, all this other this whole other set of activities that we 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 want everyone to be doing at work, um, but we can't can't get
1: there by di- by directing it necessarily right right, and you know I'll see the senior levels that want that. Sure. But there's this also other insidious things. So, if you're at the VP level, you're like, hey, I really want these things. I don't know how to get them, but I'm going to tell people I want them. Right. Yeah. But then, but then you're down at that junior manager, you know, junior director level, and they actually don't have a whole big interest, unless it's part of their character in curating this. Because if you don't have these things, all of a sudden you have to go back to command and control environment which requires more managers, which means more jobs, which means more opportunity for promotion. So there can be that kind of like junior manager, senior manager riff that that shows up. And so that's why it's so important. And we'll talk about how to correlate, um, you know, actions you can do to get there, right? Mm -hmm. But, you know, if if you're a manager um, or somebody in management and you see somebody taking that 45-minute smoke break, three times a day or you get the logs from it and they're on social media crushing candy all day. You know, generally the knee jerk that I see, of course we only get brought into, you know, organizations that maybe aren't doing the best. Um, not all the time, but when we're addressing this kind of stuff, Hey, I'm watching you. Breaks are only 10 minutes. Okay. Hey, listen, (laughs) you need to log in and log out every time, you know? And, I get it. Like, sometimes you got to have some of that. But I don't see the reflection to say, like, what is going on that this person feels that they need to take 45 minutes out of every hour to walk around the building and check Facebook? (laughs) Right? You you just never see that stuff. And, and, you know, and what if the conversation were one of, hey, Barry, listen, man— you're on Facebook and taking really long smoke breaks all the day. And Hey, I'm not throwing a stone at you. All right. Talk to me about what's going on. You know, is there something that's blocking your work? What am I doing? That's contributing to this kind of behavior. I I mean, first of all, the person you tell that to is probably going to fall out of their seat onto the floor. You know, Mm. I, I never get this kind of thing, but you know, if people are engaged now, that doesn't mean, you know, I worked at a call center for Dell and, oh my God, when I'm on hour seven, of uh, thank you for calling Dell Home Sells and Financing, right? I, there's certain things that are going to make me want to do anything to check out of that moment and have a hard time being <laughs> engaged in that kind of repetitive task. Not really right. a fit for my kind of personality, right? But, you know, yeah, so there are those things, but you got to take that moment to just pause and assess and have a quality dialogue. A safe dialogue for that person to talk about what's going on. So, right. yeah, and that's where some theory X is somewhat useful. It's not just all Y. As you know, as someone who curates that culture and everything, there are bad actors, and you do have to direct action and you know have progressive discipline and fire people. But you know, to that manager employee rift, you've got to look at yourself, right?
0: Hmm. Hmm.
1: And you know, in terms of
0: uh, you know some of the other research on this there there is a modest negative correlation between uh, organizational citizenship behaviors and counterproductive work behaviors. so you know, um, suggesting that uh, these things you know when you have more organizational citizenship behaviors, you tend to have fewer counterproductive work behaviors. and so you know I think it's it's helpful for us to to think a little bit about. Some of the ways in which we can move in the right direction, uh, increase the probability of people engaging in these types of behaviors uh, and healing this rift between managers
1: and employees. So, why don't we uh, move on to some practical steps? Right. So, the first thing you got to do is know what the symptoms are and look for them, mm-hmm. right? You can't start to trend better. So, if you're a retail organization and you have a big problem with employee theft, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, the first thing to say, like, there's a lot of thieves in the world. Well, think, you know, if they felt so positively and were part of the team and organization, they wouldn't want to steal inventory because they're part of that team. right? Right. Or, you know, just knowing what the positive, do I see altruism in, in my organization or people helping each other out? And so you know, that can sound kind of nebulous. And one of the ways to formulize that is to perhaps have an annual assessment to measure these items. Right, right. And of
0: course, that, that assessment should be uh, conducted in a proper way that's confidential, where you're actually um, taking action based upon some of the, the responses so that people don't, so you're not actually increasing that cynicism that sometimes
1: happens. Yeah, uh, if, you know... you, if you do those assessments and never do anything with them, you're going to yeah. make it hard for surgeons to come in and heal your patient, right? That's right. Because they're going to try to assess to make sure that they, uh, you know, tackle the most critical, impactful item first. But you have a decade plus of doing these surveys and never doing anything with it. So, yeah, <laughs> yeah we could do a whole podcast on that. I mean,
0: that's, <laughs> oh yeah, God. I see that a lot, right? And and why assess stuff if you're not going to do anything about it? Um, it just seems silly to me. And and it's it's negative. It like it's actually harmful. Um, so you know, I think helping managers know what some of these symptoms are, some of those things we talked about earlier, and some of the helpful responses. But I think uh, another idea here is just that we should in in all across all different levels in an organization, uh, we should broaden our definition of what good job performance looks like um it is it certainly involves things related to your tasks those things that related to you know your technical expertise for example um, your job description, but it also includes all of these things related to the context and creating a positive social and psychological climate. Uh, these things call, that we refer to as organizational citizenship behaviors, um, right. helping each other, uh, being a booster for the organization, civic virtue, all of those different things. And managers um, should work to curate a culture that encourages them. And it starts with role modeling it.
1: Right. And so that's where you just have to train your managers on this stuff, so it's great if you can diagnose the symptoms, and this is that kind of wheel spin that organizes. Okay, I see the problems. We have good assessment. I want to do stuff. You do an all hands meeting with a video and everything, and mm-hmm. and you talk about we saw that you know these are the things we're doing that are causing bad citizenship behaviors. We're gonna, you know, the buck starts here. We're gonna do something, and then nothing happens. Lots of time that wheel spin is you haven't actually. Trained your managers on how to do these things, and then you haven't, like to your point, Ben, broaden those definition of job performance, like to include your performance reviews and how compensation is awarded and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Another piece, and I'm always about this, is okay. Maybe you do have good training and all that kind of stuff, leadership and development. But one of the problems with that whole like L and D, you know, leadership and development, is most of that training is preserved for the, your managers, but imagine training your employees on all this stuff so that everybody within the organization can say, these are bad citizenship behaviors and, and empowering the line worker, the, you know, the individual contributor to throw a yellow card and enlist help. You know, we did a podcast on difficult conversations So if they're having a difficult conversation with their manager and the line level person said, oh man, hey, I feel this conversation's going sideways, let's go get the conversations coach out of HR, you know, Mm -hmm. to help us. Or, hey, these aren't the citizenship behaviors I want to see. Imagine if anybody in your org can throw a yellow card and had people that could come in and help remedy that culture element, remedy that performance element in a way that was beneficial not just to the organization, but to everybody that works there.
0: Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, You know, I think there's also some value in uh, trying to, you know, catch some of the the data on the back end. You know, so sometimes we talk about exit interviews and there's, there's, um, you know, sometimes people will will be very forthright when they're leaving an organization. Um, You know, you got to take that stuff with a grain of salt, but that can be a way in which you start to uncover and peel back the onion layers, so to speak, of what's going on in your organization. So as people are leaving, so do a good job with that, and actually try to catalog that information and, and look for trends and so forth. Um, you know, another thing is, I think it's just a, another mindset piece for for managers. You know, don't treat them as your tools for personal success. You know, you can't, again, you can't fake this. If you actually care about them as people and you value what they do, Uh, You can't just treat them as stepping stones. And uh, you know don't just treat all this type of information that we're sharing today uh, as ways to suck more effort out of them or ways to psychologically manipulate them to trick them into helping each other with things and doing things that are not in their job description. That's not what we're talking about here. This is not about manipulation. This is about creating an environment in which
1: people um, feel engaged and actually can flourish. Right, you know, when I go in and... do agile transformations in organizations and scrum team builds and stuff. You know, lots of um the orgs have read the scrum book, which the mm. sub subtitle is, you know, twice the work in half the time. And and the managers are like, Whoa, ha, 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 yes, Whoa. yes, finally the magic stone, you know, the and, <laughs> and they're thinking, oh my gosh, we're literally going to get twice the work in half the time. But if you get under the hood of those agile things, what gets them that is fixing the culture and the citizenship behaviors and all that kind of stuff. It's not more of this secret process that you can keep your same crappy command and control behavior. Mm -hmm. Right. And that, oh, these employees are going to let, you know, level me all the way up to VP, you know. If that's your focus, you will miss out on that kind of thing. So, you know, that's just like a pro tip there. You know, if if they're looking at, at the Agile stuff and Scrum as just a way to get more out of this bleed the same rock harder. Yeah, you've got that rift there. Right, right.
0: You know, another thing that you can do as an organization is to, uh, you know, think about these citizenship behaviors and ways in which you can infuse them into how you're you are training and holding your managers accountable. So, are you using are you evaluating them on these types of things? Uh, you know, one way that some organizations uh, kind of package this is through their core competencies. So, if you have a a good competency model um, and with some some actual behavioral descriptions of what those those competencies look like what good levels of that look like, what bad levels of that look like, um, then you can actually evaluate people on it. And uh, that that starts to get at not only what they're doing, but how they're getting it done and how they're doing things that are promoting a harmonious environment and not one that is creating this rift between them
1: and the rest of the organization. Right. And so if you're stuck in an organization and you're like, ugh, well, we're not doing so good at all these things, right? Right. (laughs) Um... One one of the paths that comes both from, you know, my experience in the military and stuff that I've seen in agile organizations that can kind of change their org shape a little bit as they try to address this is we're having an IG or a first sergeant command what's sergeant an, major. What's an IG? Yeah, like inspector general function <laughs> within. And that's not just about whistleblowing and that kind of stuff, but... One of the interesting things in the Army is um, as an officer, the people and, you know, I'm kind of counterculture with this. I just view myself as having a different job or role. Mm -hmm. Um, But to expedite the conversation, use some of this language. So the people I manage, but really it's just my fellow teammates that do different roles. I'm not competing with them for promotion. So if right. they're a subject matter expert on IT or HR or some aspect of the infantry, they have their own promotion path that is separate from mine. So that, that means we can be a little bit more collaborative. But lots of times, since the officer kind of has to call the shots at the end because they're legally responsible for something, um, that can get derailed. But generally what somebody will do is when they think an officer's making a mistake, they'll go to their more senior sergeant or enlisted person and say, Hey, here's what's going on. And if that senior person's like, Yeah, that's pretty jacked up, right? Mm-hmm. They'll go to that officer and say, Hey, sir, what the heck are you doing? <laughs> right. Yeah. They'll will yeah, uh, So yeah. So a good yeah,
0: and we do the same thing in the Navy. And so like on a on a ship we call them or at a um at a, a larger command, we call it a command master chief um, or uh, on, on submarines, they call them a the chief of the boat uh, in a unit. So I'm also the commanding officer of a Navy reserve unit at right now. And so I have a senior enlisted leader and, uh, you know, I work with with her and with uh, the other kind of second in command officer that I have what we call an executive officer as what we call a triad. I mean we are we are on many topics like so I, everything you know comes down to me in terms of overall responsibility but um we are you know this triad these three people we work as a team on a lot of different issues especially things related to um management and how people are doing and that kind of stuff and you have to build the trust with these types of people so that I mean I'm fairly confident that if I we're screwing something up royally, like, you know, or even minorly with, uh, with my, um, you know, interpersonally or some decisions I were making, I'm, I, you know, sh- my senior enlisted leader would come to me and say, Hey, <laughs> wrong call there. Like we let, let's talk about how we can fix this. And um, that's very helpful. And, and I think there could be some sort of corollary in, Uh, civilian organizations in which you have somebody who is the kind of the champion of the rest of the people. You know, sometimes it's a senior level, very experienced person who, you know, is a technician on the plant floor. Um, I'm thinking of, you know, one of the scrum, uh, you know, agile transformations that you did in an organization where there was this very senior level Um, person, uh, basically this person had been there for like 30 years, knew everything. And uh, you chose that person and groomed that person to be the scrum master of their team. Like that person didn't have any qualms with telling senior leaders, telling the CEO, this is jacked up, this is going well, this isn't. And that's really helpful. And that can start to create, you know, a a sense of cohesion and just some honesty that can heal this rift between management and employees.
1: Right. And I I just want to bring up, I would not always pick that most senior person to be the scrum person, but there was a cultural shift that needed to go on in that specific organization. So there's so many different ways to skin the cat, so to speak, on this. And one of these things is having cultural champions. So if you had identified certain people with your organization that, hey, you know, and there's a standard of conduct. So- yeah, we'll go down this rabbit hole a little bit. So you have these individuals within your org that anybody can go talk to without it necessarily being aired to the rest of the organization. This isn't about whistleblower behavior. This is about the culture isn't positive or my interactions with my manager aren't positive. And this isn't an HR person because you don't want to necessarily escalate or start that legal process. Mm-hmm. And and you go to that cultural champion is what I like to call him. And you say, hey, listen, my manager's doing this and this doesn't seem to make sense. Great, that person can take your stuff in confidence and go to another senior manager or go to that actual manager to try to remedy and heal that rift. Now, if you do set up these culture champions having a standard of conduct, i.e. these conversations are confidential and the organization's not gonna hear about them, right? Unless the culture champion determines a better way forward, Um, and then you can have a center of excellence for those. So if you've got 20 of those spread throughout your organization, you got to give them training on these theory X, theory Y, difficult conversations, negotiations, project management, Uh, like you'd have a different type of stuff because these are the people that are going to be pruning the weeds out of your soil so that people can thrive and grow.
0: Right. Right. And you can imagine if you orchestrated that program and did it well, and had great people in those positions, uh, as culture champions, um, how that could really create a, you know, a different type of conversation that's going on in your, in your organization and really starting to create more
1: cohesiveness, um, across all the different levels. Right. And and sometimes people make those culture champions as that's before you get into management or before you get into like more the director VP level, you have to have a stint as a cultural champion. And mm-hmm. the, And that doesn't have to be a full-time role. Like maybe you come in and you get trained as a culture champion, you're a culture champion for three years, and then you move out. And so you can move more people into that kind of cohort.
0: So I think it's just important to kind of come back to this, uh, you know, uh, the topic today, which was us versus them. You know, uh, this is not productive (laughs) for an organization. (laughs) Right. Um, You know, the best organizations have a shared sense of purpose and meaning. Uh, And they have shared rewards for success Um, that it's not because I mean, that's one great way to make a rift between management and employees is where organizations doing great. And the only people getting bonuses are the people at the top, right? Um, So this is very important for the long term success and health of the organization. Uh, So maybe, uh, you know, under this topic of us versus them healing the
1: management employee rift. What were the big topics that we talked about today, Chris? All right, so we talked about the big rift that can emerge. Mm-hmm. And that's the wheel spin and all of that stuff. It it can happen just like in a relationship, these don't happen overnight, but they they're trends, and when you have that rift, that's it's a result of a long list of behaviors and organizational norms that are are killing you. So then we talked about aligning the factions. Like how do you start to think about this and align both people's mindsets that, you know, both the employee and management, there's a problem here that we want to fix. What is the language that you're going to use to talk about that? And, you know, so first the problem takes a long time to happen. Then you got to align the faction, you got to let everybody see the problem clearly. And then we talked about practical steps to head in the right direction if you want to start turning this around.